start. I don't want it to sound like a boring review. <laughs> okay, we're good. All right, we're going to start. Okay. Um, here on the second episode of Trade Secrets, my podcast, I'm Candace Stewart, and I'm here today with Mark Needham. Hello. Hello. And we're in Studio 3 at East West, uh, where I had the good fortune of being the manager. But we want to find out, Mark, um, I don't know, let's start at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Fairhaven, California, which is about 650 miles north of here. And wow. A big town? Little town? 75 people. Oh, my God. Three-room schoolhouse. Oh, know. really? Yeah. Oh, that's kind of cool. And so, uh, do you listen, obviously, you listen to the radio when you were a kid, but... We didn't. We didn't listen to much radio. My, you know, we only had, we had two AM radio stations. We didn't have no FM radio stations. Oh, really? So it was. We had country and country, so just these two AM stations. But my, my sister was five years older than me, and she had like a huge record collection. And by the time I was you know, five years old or so, she was really introducing me to new. Right, whatever new records were coming out, you know, to all the way through grammar school. Oh wow! And uh, first record that you remember that you loved? Boy, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> she had so many records. I mean, there was um, there was a lot of uh, early Aretha stuff oh, cool. she brought, like the first Beatles record. Yeah, yeah. All that For me, I think it was like my parents' records and then Beatles, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my sister Jane would bring, she had all kinds of weird stuff, you know, from like from John Mayall with, with oh, yeah. letters and the early Fleetwood Mac stuff, you know, like when Peter was still with, with, with Fleetwood and... Um, she had a huge R&B collection. Um, just, she kind of just, you know, she, she was kind of my musical educator, I guess, when I was young. I have three older siblings, and it's exactly the same for me. Mm. Sorry, I have no idea what the water drink is going to sound like on that uh, <laughs> on this lav mic. These are cool little lav mics, huh? They are cool. Yeah, this is. Um, these are the little DPA mics. Shout out to DPA, love them, and they. They lent me these to use, and these are the same mics that are on the Mars rover. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder who's talking in them up there. For the, for, yeah. you know, like, is it for well, the think, wind? Or? I think the concern is when you actually do hear someone talking on them, that's when all hell is going to break <laughs> loose. <laughs> Leave us alone. Yeah. Go home. <laughs> Let me out. No, anyway. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think that one thing I've noticed at least for myself and pretty much anybody that works in recording or any aspect of music production, ultimately it begins because you're a fan. Yeah, I was a you guitar know? player. Yeah, That's kind of how I really got into it. I played guitar and um, I left. I graduated high school early at 16 and went to... I did too. That's weird. I moved down to San Francisco with my guitar teacher and we started... Uh, Were you just brilliant? How'd you get out at 16? I I was good at school. I was too. Yeah, I was just like the straight A. I took seven solids and just kind of. I just wanted to get out of Arcata. So people was... in, people in the audience, <laughs> if you knew us, you'd be you'd be kind of surprised to hear that. Not that we're not intelligent, but you'd be like, really interesting. <laughs> so we went down and started like a rock music school in San Francisco. And oh, you just started with a school, 
Like you didn't play gigs around town. You just my my uh, my guitar teacher started this kind of this rock music school. Um, so I you know I came down and was part partnered up with the school down there and that's kind of how I ended up starting recording. I had an empty closet and I got one Neumann microphone and I had a little two channel input tube mixer and the old Sony tape recorder and I would record the classes or just the I would record like you know whoever a student with an acoustic guitar singing right. a song you know um, and then I started doing I got a gig doing all the records for this um, label that did all uh, finger picking uh, ragtime guitar mm. So I, I got this deal to start recording all the records. I mean, it was literally a closet. It was like I would sit like this, like this close. You know, yeah. the, the guitar players playing there. I got my little microphone. Wow. And, um, so we did like like location, basically location recording. Just in a little yeah. closet. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was maybe three feet by four feet or wow. something. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's so interesting to me that the first thing would be a school. That's so crazy, but. Makes sense. Have to figure out how to record on the fly. They had a, they had a, there was a, the school had, it was made of a 35 piece rock band. Wow. With like guitar uh, section. Oh, and, right, 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 you know, right. Um, Stylistically, what was it, just all over the map or was it like one genre? It was, it was kind of, it was a little <laughs> weird, you know. <laughs> It was. It, uh, they, they never had. Any, Is this guy like, a Grateful Dead fan? They was never had any. Wild, they never had any wild success. They did have. Um, I was out. In, uh, they'd they'd set up for a show that. Um, uh, that oh, what's his name? Owned Atlantic. Ahmed Erdogan. Ahmed's going to come by and hear the band. They'd been getting some press or something. Wow, that's so, cool. So Ahmed drives up in his, his his limousine, gets out of the car, and tells the driver keep the motor running. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he was there anyhow. But so the band <laughs> never really had any success. But the studio just kind of grew from my little closet. We did a. Did you have to pay a rent on it or anything? N not at that time, but then we we ran a contest at the school so that. We we'd met the uh, the CEO Levi Strauss and he had been helping the school out and we we did a contest to write a theme song for Levi's and whoever wrote, cool. whoever wrote the best song got two months of free tuition but we've got the rights to the to oh, the song cool. so we, we we I recorded this song. do you remember the tune do you remember the melody Le <laughs> Levi jeans don't have to be blue they come in all the colors that the rainbow do oh nice it was, a, it was this guy named Ned Self so he got two months but but the the, the little ad went national you know went national like we made I made a like a bunch of money so I got a then I built like an eight track oh, oh, studio so you got, oh so you got like a residual from it you yeah. got money from it. Oh, nice. Yeah, I built an 8-track studio, well, a 4-track, and then we built our own console and got an 8-track recorder. Some of the money went to the school. But For I those got, of you who are listening, it's no easy feat to build your own console, okay? It's, <laughs> it sounds super easy. But <laughs> you know, so we just we went through a 4-track, and then we built built a bigger console and got an 8-track, and 
then the studio started making more money than the school, so. Oh, what was the name of the studio? Um, it was, the school was Blue Bear Waltz's School of Music. It's still Blue Bear what? Waltz's. It's okay. still Blue in Blue Bear San, Waltz's. Oh, okay. It's still in San Francisco. Like oh wow! It's, we started in 1970. It's still there. Oh you know? wow! Oh, that's cool. Um, and so we moved away from the studio. Then we built a we built a bigger console, and we built our own 24 track. Who is your partner in crime doing all this? This building? was a, a, a partner, Tom Sharples, who was a student at the school, who was okay. a good guitar player, but he was also, his dad was like... An electronics guy, it An electronics like. guy and had oh. a machine shop and stuff. So we oh, bought, there you go. We bought two two-inch video recorders and turned them into one analog 24 track. That's crazy. I can't even imagine the modification going on with something like that. That's not nice. She didn't have any money, you know. Uh, but, well, uh, what is that? Necessity is the uh, yeah. uh, mother of invention, right? So we just kind of kept, you know, just building and the studio got bigger and we got bigger projects. We got, we finally got um, a record with Taj Mahal when it was oh, on Warner's, wow. one of his early albums. and. That was kind of our first foothold in the major label business. I know you're uh, a lot of your uh, people that are familiar with you are familiar with you from working with Chris Isaac. How did that uh, collaboration come about? I was working with this friend of mine, Eric Jacobson. He did uh, Love and Spoonful. Oh, I love them. He did uh, a song, Spirit in the Sky. Mm. Uh, that's, Is that Manfred Mann? Who was Spirit in the Sky? Spirit in the Sky was Norman Greenbaum. Oh, Norman Greenbaum, of course. And, and uh, yeah, he had a bunch of big, big records at that time. And we were doing, oh God, what was the name of the band? Um, God, spacing on the name of the band, another big 60s band. We were, we were doing some stuff with them and Eric had told me about some artist he wanted to go see that was playing at the at the Mabuhe down on Broadway. And was like, Chris like an acoustic performer, or did he have a full band? That was a band. It was the it was the original band. Mm -hmm. um, but it was uh, they were playing at a punk club down there, and and how did that go over? It was you know he was kind of that rockabilly punk right, right, thing. Right, 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 right. Um, what was that called there in LA? In LA? It was called cowpunk. Cowpunk, that genre, yes, yes, right? like yeah. Like wire train. Yeah. And... The, they hated, they had no reverb on anything. They Bummer. wanted no reverb. They hated reverb. Bummer. Um, I would think his voice in particular would be suitable with reverb. Yeah, they didn't want any reverb at all on anything. So we started, Eric, we started working with them. We did a few songs. Eric parlayed that into a deal with Warner Brothers oh, for good, him. Oh, good for good. Um, that was kind of my first, Wait. my first starting to learn about artist development and you know doing that kind of thing, which I've done a lot. Yeah, now that career. you mention that, that's one of the things about you that I know kind of separates you from a lot of people that are recording engineers or journeyman engineers, uh, is that you kind of got involved early on with getting deeper into artist development and actually getting involved you know, on a publishing, in the publishing aspect and stuff like that, which I think makes perfect sense. I mean, if you're the collaborator and you're helping the person bring everything to fruition, why shouldn't you be doing that? But I a mean, lot of people don't do that. A lot of engineers are just for hire. I mean... I, I always I, thought that was your manager, Andrew Brightman, who... Uh, Andrew came to me because he, he... Andrew came to me because he heard 
the Killers when we were working oh, on that. Yeah. Somebody had been passing around some of the demos that we, or yeah. some of the album that we were recording. And yeah. He heard it and like tracked me down oh. and came by and went. But, I but love you this were already, stuff. But you'd already kind of done it with 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 Chris and other artists, and then he. Just... I had been doing it in in out of the Bay Area for a while, and right. then I was down here, and there was me and two friends of mine from the Bay Area. So signed three bands, and the Killers was one of them. Yeah. And then that sound, that was a kind of a journey too. Explain how that went, because I, if I remember correctly, no one in the states was going to sign him. And I think, didn't you get him a deal in the UK or something like that? That's, yeah, What's bro, the story on that? Yeah, they were. I mean, we finished up the record and then shopped it for. And this a is year. the one with Mr. Brightside's on it and stuff like that. Yeah, the whole record was was done pretty much there was a couple, we did a couple of songs after the deal got inked with with uh, Island but um, yeah we took it around there was the three of us that had worked on it Warner's passed on it they, um, Warner's actually had an option on it because they were uh, we'd done a deal so that they had a 60 day right. option on it they passed on that every, I mean everybody passed on it we, we went that's to every, so crazy every to me that's such label, one of my know. favorite records of all time but uh, there was we were down to like indies in the UK. Why can't I remember the name of the record? What's the title of that record? Hot Fuss. Hot Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuss. Fuss. Hot Fuss. So okay. we sent. We ended up doing a deal with Lizard King, and right. which was a really small label at the time. Um, and they were in states or UK? UK. All right. And um, Mr. Br Mr. It was Mr. Brightside, and somebody told me where the first single was A and B side, and that went number one in the right. UK and then everybody went oh no we love that you know but <laughs> sometimes it's hard to 2020 you know it's hard to tell you know with new stuff sometimes whether people will re kids will react that's true so, but you know we've just I've been lucky picking out some good ones and I keep doing I mean I kind of started to do it do it so that people it was especially after I'd done Wicked Game with Chris Isaac it was like I just thought like every label would call or every artist would call wanted me to do the next Chris Isaac that wicked game guitar sound again it's like right. I fucking did that already I don't really want to do it again yeah. you know, I made that up well, well, you're not, you're, I want to do something different I don't want to just keep doing the same well, you're sound a, you, people, don't, people don't really understand that, that engineers and producers are artists and creators in their own right just like musicians are and you'll talk to a musician and they by the time they're on tour practically doing a promo of a record they're, they're done with it and they're on to the next thing you know what I mean they're They've already written new stuff, so yeah. I can totally relate to not wanting to do this, getting pigeonholed into that. Yeah, same well, thing. I did, you know, I'd started, I'd known a lot of engineers, you know, like find like, us the next killers, you know what I mean? I, I you know, I knew a lot of engineer, engineers from the '60s who had, you know, late '60s and early '70s who weren't working that much because they had that one sound. So right, you know, and people would come to that sound, but when nobody wants to do that anymore, they're dead in the water. So. We started doing, I mean, I kind of started doing artist development just so I could find, you know, right, well, I can do this to kind of, you know. I Keep busy or? Yeah, well, just to be, also not get locked into just one style. I mean, right. I always, I've had, I, I as a player, I had really diverse, ta you know, mm -hmm. taste in music and. Um, do you still play guitar at all? Not that much. Yeah. But I did all that, you know, all that. I started with that ragtime, kicking mule stuff. I oh, was, that's uh, cool. 
um, and when I was like 21, I've I've had a jazz label that hired to hire me to do all their records. So I went to New York. So you were like the, the the singular wrecking crew guy. You were just the guy, the guitar guy. <laughs> well, that was all just to record and produce. So I went to New oh, okay, York okay. and produced all these. Uh, but you play guitar on it. No, I'm okay. just producing recording. Okay, got it. Sorry, confused. I just didn't. Uh, you know, so I had I had all these different styles of music that I had recorded and you know mixed, produced, whatever over since I was starting when I was sixteen or seventeen when I started my first studio. Wow. Um, so I just I really didn't want to get pigeonholed as that guy who does the Chris Isaac guitar sound or the Hot Fuss sound or whatever. You know, right. I just I want to. So I mean, I keep trying to develop stuff so that. People who can't pigeonhole me is yeah the guy like who just oh that's does that's thing, a that's you know? a Mark Needham thing. Although I would say, and it would be a compliment, and, it, and rather I mean it as a compliment that when I hear a record you've done, it, even if I don't think I could guess that it was you, but if it sounds good, it wouldn't surprise me that it was you. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. You I know, think, if you, I, think, if you, I think my inner anger issues come through <laughs> on most of the records I do. <laughs> Um, well, you know what I think? I think, you know, it might come through because you are a guitar player. I think the guitar doesn't get buried in the mix on your songs. Yeah. You know you know how a lot of times where if a producer's a singer or a producer's a drummer, the drums are really loud, you know what I mean? Or, the, or whatever aspect it is of that. This is a positive thing because I think the guitar really shines through. And in Chris's case, that's... Uh, I mean, I was, all these guys, it's appropriate. I was a guitar player. I was a drummer for a while because... In San Francisco, you had to be the drummer. <laughs> well, I just couldn't eat play, playing guitar. You know, I was living on a like a hundred eighty dollars a month. You oh know, oh my god. Um, so I had this because everybody played guitar, but drummers yeah. could actually work. So wow, I could you know I would do like play drums in cover bands. From we had a place we played at from nine till we'd play nine till two at the Shy Fox. Nine p.m. Nine and yeah, nine p.m. till two in the morning, and then we'd go across the street. At the, the shy fox. Yeah, and then we'd oh, go like to the that. ghetto club across the street and play two to six in the morning. <laughs> the ghetto club. <laughs> yeah. Um, that doesn't. <laughs> but, hey, you I'm going to take like, you on a date to the ghetto club. You're trying to eat, you know. It's like I was hungry, so. Um, but uh, anyhow, back to you know just the artist development thing. I just, I started doing that. Just, I you know I, I've, I've done. You know, a lot of jazz music. I've done acoustic music. I've worked with Dolly. I worked with Fleetwood Mac. You know, I just like. Oh to... yeah. So, so what are you doing now that you're digging on Dolly Parton? How cool is that? I mean, Dolly. I started working with to a friend of mine, Kent Wells, in Tennessee. He's mm -hmm. his musical director. So now you're bi-coastal, right? You're the you're the L.A. Nashville bi-coastal. I kind of like that too. I mean, I've moved around a lot in yeah. my. You know, I was. It was in San Francisco. I came to here. I got. I mean. I like to be in town, in a town where there's a lot of good music yeah, going on. Yeah, where stuff's and, happening, and Nashville certainly and is. Uh, Nashville is right now because it's still cheaper, and artists can afford. Yeah. To you can still get a house pretty cheap outside of town, you know. Yeah. Um, so I love Nashville. It's come a long way, boy. It's come a long way with its restaurants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm from the south, so I can, I can speak to that. But I can just say that Nashville is. I mean, it's a lovely town. I love the people there. I've always loved it. But uh, yeah, for a while there, when I would go out to visit, I'd be like, really? You can like, only do so much meat and three. Yeah, know? yeah, but, yeah. I was like, oh, what are my choices? Oh, biscuits and gravy again. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, that's how the whole the artist development thing really started. It's just so people would stop asking me, you know, to do the same good sound over and over. It's like, well, no, I got this band signed. Now I'm doing this, or you know, right, something. Right. But, well, I think I think it's it, you know you don't want to stagnate, and you're like I said, you're creative too. So why would you want to keep doing the same thing over and over again? I have mad respect for Dolly as a multi instrumentalist and as a writer. I'm. I remember when I was a little kid watching the Porter Wagner show, and she would come out, but she would play like mandolin and stuff, and and I'd never seen a girl dressed in a you know suede fringe suit with boots. I didn't, you know, that I didn't never had never seen anything like that. Yeah, so. she plays she plays drums, saxophone. You know, she's one of those people who plays anything. It's so amazing, and and from such humble beginnings. I know she grew up in really really rural Tennessee actually, right? Not, I thought Kentucky, but it's Tennessee. Tennessee yeah. And I think I read an article that she had electricity installed in the house she grew up in not that long ago as like it's sort of a little landmark or historical landmark because she grew up there. But um, how fun is she to work with? I, I think she would be so fun. She's a boss. She works, you know, she works really hard. She gets up. She's one of the few people I know who get up earlier than I do. I mean, yeah, I get a pretty. We were talking. We we're, were doing like working on the Christmas record that we did, um, and I forget we got in the conversation. But she's always up. She does stuff early. I said, "Well, I'm I, you know I'm usually up at four and in the studio by five, um, and she gets up at two, and like writes till when five she, or six. When did she six, go six, to bed? Months. Six p.m. I mean, <laughs> <You know? laughs> she goes to bed. Did she goes to bed like later than I do? She gets up at two. <laughs> And then she comes in, you know, and she'll work a 15-hour day or something. You know, Man, she's, yeah, she's like an Energizer bunny. And she's, I mean, she's getting older, so that's that's saying something, man. I mean, you know. She's older than I am. Wow, you know, yeah. Like, she, looks, she looks fine, though, man. I mean, she just, I think uh, the room that we're sitting in, actually, I believe it's the room we're sitting in, I believe 9 to 5. Uh, that uh, song for the movie was recorded I, in the I room that we're was sitting in. I think it was recorded. I th yeah, it's yeah. either in Studio Two or Studio Three. Oh no, it was this room. It was this room, yeah. My uh, my wonderful engineer from the booth, give me a thumbs up. <laughs> um, well, it's so interesting to me. I mean, uh, you know, as a studio manager, obviously I'm a, a champion of engineers, and I think they never really get their due. You know, a lot of people now. It, and always, it kind of blows my mind. Like, didn't really, don't really understand how crucial the the engineer is to the whole recording process. And and I'll be on the phone now, booking time, and I'll be like, well, you wouldn't get on a plane without a pilot. You right. know what I mean? Right. Like, you wouldn't get on a train without a conductor. You know what I mean? But it's I don't. Now it's great. I think artist empowerment is great. I think people being able to do stuff on their own in their homes is great. I think that's fantastic. But I would say that a lot of mediocrity has risen into the mainstream because just because people could doesn't mean they should, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I get a lot of both. I get, you know, I get stuff that's just like, why did you put like 10 kick drums on this that right. are out of phase with right. each other? It's like you just keep putting more and more and their phase is different on each one. And it doesn't yeah. get, what a but, nightmare. But, you know, sometimes, I mean, I you know, I do, seminars on mixing and recording sometimes and you know so I always like to tell people that there aren't any really any rules you know so sometimes people do stuff that's so wrong that's a that happy like, accident that's super cool like yeah. I, I, I'm mixing this band um, 
for a label. It just just started like a couple days ago, and I'd been listening to the to the ref mix that they sent, but I also saw that there was their first demo was actually in the file on another player. So I put that on. I went, holy crap. And you love the first this demo? This is like, I mean, it's, there's so much shit that's so wrong with it, but but some of it was like, God, I, I need to kind of sound Get like him back what, to that a little what bit. What they huh? were doing, you know? So, um, well, and it's the kernel of the song, too. I mean, I think... I think that while I'm saying that engineers are so crucial, because I truly believe that they are, I think we'd all agree that it's the emotional impact of the song, that a, a good song is hard to keep down. I mean, you can mess it up, for sure. But it's, if it's a really good song, and if it's lyrically good, and the melody's good, and it moves you, then, I mean, it's, then it's your job to just to kind of not not mess it up. I mean, sometimes right? like, like I was listening to their demo, and they, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that was really wrong, but emotionally, just some of the sounds they were doing and the really wrong levels that they were doing on the guitars, really, like, there was something in there that something to glean. Cool. There was something cool to glean from that to, to put into one where you could actually hear the drums and bass, too. Are you allowed, to, guitars, tell us who, are you allowed guitars, to tell us who this band is? Uh, no, I can't yet. Okay, they're, okay. They're a new band. We want to blow uh, it up. I'm not supposed to yet. Stay tuned for that. We'll stay tuned um, for that. But, uh... You know, I, mean, I just gleaned some stuff from their, you know, like the emotional impact that they were going from their little demo that they did at their house. I was like, oh, okay, well, let's take that, what they were trying to get there, but put it in something where you could hear big drums and bass against it, too. And so sometimes, I, I mean, uh, you know, again, stuff could be completely wrong, but but some people are still doing cool stuff, even if they're they're not aware of it. I don't know, you know, I mean, I mean they were doing a mo I mean, half the mix was wrong, but there was some stuff in it that was, that was like, yeah, that's worth like grabbing. That's why I always love to get, uh, you know, I mix. To get the demos. I always like to get the demos in any mixes they've ever done and just listen to oh, it. because Because they can just skip through and go like, oh, here's emotionally what they were. I know I can, I can see how I can take that and do, stuff and, and do put you it think, in. I think also too, like a lot of times a band will be gigging and they will have written what will end up being the songs for their first record and they know them really well, they've been playing them for years and then they get into the situation where maybe they have a record deal or they've gotten some kind of publishing deal and then they've got to write the stuff for the second record. The stuff from the first record, they know it, it they've lived with it a long time, you know what I mean? And then the second record, like the sophomore effort sometimes, you'll see a lot of times with artists, like they'll come out the gate with that first record, it's amazing, and then the sophomore record, you're like, oh man, what happened to this band? And it, I don't know if it was the pressure from the record company, or they felt like they had to appease a certain audience, but they lost that initial thing that you're talking about, that initial spirit that they had in the demos that made it, that made it so cool to begin with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's always yeah. tough with... With a band, especially if they have a lot of success on a first record, yeah. That I mean, I can think of a couple that I've that I've helped you know develop, and you know they had huge success and they're on tour for two and a half years straight, just like nonstop. They still haven't written the second record. Well, or? but they're they're young and they're, you know they just think this next one's going to come. They're just going to. You know, just they'll sit down and that's it'll make just, itself. It'll make itself. <laughs> but so they also haven't learned to say no to management and the label yet. So they're they're literally going six, seven days a yeah, week. Yeah, exhausted. You know, they're exhausted. And yeah. They don't have time to. You know, they don't have time to write that next record. And 
And they're enjoying the, you know, we're stars, we're fucking yeah. rock stars, oh yeah. my god. Yeah. Um, I always thought you, it would be a nightmare to be famous, to be honest. The, the, you know, the <laughs> second album, you know, to, also then they come back and they want to, they want to make a big departure from the first record, sometimes emotionally, uh, artistically. and. Fans don't always respond well to that. If, so, you, if you know, you've gotten a, them hooked there, on a certain there, thing. There's a bunch of things usually at play in that, but there's a lot of failed sophomore records. Yeah. That are, yeah, no, it's true. I, can't, I won't mention any, but I can, I can <laughs> well, think of some. Well, well yeah. one I think of that isn't from my childhood would be Led Zeppelin II. Yeah. yeah, that isn't a failure. But yeah, I mean, the others I can't think of them because we probably already forgot them. You know what I mean? There, now, there was such a scene happening in San Francisco when you were there. I'm going to assume this is the early 70s, mid-70s? 19, yeah, 1970 I started, yeah, I can't. Yeah, it was such a scene. I've been watching this documentary on 1971, the year that changed, you know, that music changed the world. And, I mean, we're similar in age. You're a couple years older than me, but I remember even living in South Carolina. I mean, we had the Vietnam War. We had all that stuff that was happening, all the protests that were happening. You had Haight-Ashbury. You were kind of, the 60s had ended and the sort of the innocence, in my opinion, of the flower power, you know, that had sort of ended with, not ended with Woodstock, but it kind of culminated with Woodstock. Now you're in the 70s and you're in San Francisco. And I mean, was it like a bunch of heroin addicts and stuff? Or what no, was I mean, going it was on? still, I mean, still it was. Still pretty hippied out? Uh, you know, I've, I, I've had people ask me in like doing this, you know, speaking things like at South By or whatever, about, yeah. you know, about people get off on analog tape and the analog machine, you know, how that made all those records from the, you know, the 60s and 70s had that sound. But it's like, that was, the most important thing that was going on was like, like you know, just all the stuff that went through in the '60s. The with, stuff that with, was happening in the world was such. Yeah, such, I mean, rock rock and roll was still like yeah, fun and yeah. and you know, free sex and yeah. And then the proton, like when I was in eighth grade, my well, and breaking away from the older generation. My sister took me in eighth grade to my first. Uh, I came down. She was at UC Berkeley, and she brought me down to my first big uh, Vietnam War protest. Yeah, my brothers took me to one. Like three hundred thousand people. Oh my and god! Tear gas. Oh going my god! Three hundred thousand people. And we, it was the uh, one of the big. That's scary when you're you're fourteen or thirteen yeah, or something. It's, it's, you know. Oh my god! Smoked my first joint under oh, the Campanile. Yeah. Oh, me went too. Went to see. Uh, went to a party at the Berkeley Hills. Janis Joplin's playing. You know, it's a house band. Wow. It was, you know, just, just uh, you know, the politics and and you know the revolution that was yeah, happening yeah. in music from what was the late fifties, early sixties to all of a sudden. Right from the from the crooners of a, a, a you know Frankie Valley or whomever, someone like that. Now we've got. You know, crunchy guitar and long haired yeah. jean wearing, you know, girls, yeah, the girls with no the, bras, you know. To the thugs, <laughs> to the whatever, you know, just all these. Yeah. So it was, you know, there was just the whole political climate yeah. and, and drug, you know, I mean, drugs were still fun. Yeah. You know, um, you know, and then probably. I mean, I remember, and you remember this too, you know, the war was such an ever present aspect of our everyday life. I remember sitting down to dinner. And like yeah, I got watching the news. And I got news. drafted. I got my. You I, did. Yeah, I got drafted. Yeah. I broke my. 
I broke my knee. I was used to race motorcycles when I was young. And I broke my, uh, I'd broken one knee in football. And I broke another one. Oh Lord! When I had to go down to the Oakland Induction Center, so I didn't have to. Uh, so I but, got but out. you didn't get in a wreck on the way there on purpose, <laughs> did you? And then <laughs> the next year. When I came up again, when my when I was healed for my next draft, I got I, 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 the war was ending, so they didn't. But know. wouldn't you be four? Oh, I guess you wouldn't necessarily be four F if you'd healed. I guess maybe. I know you go back wow. to one A. Yeah, you know. My brother got my oldest brother is older than you, but he got drafted and he broke his back in a car accident, and 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 got out of the draft. My other brother got called up on the lottery, but he'd had polio as a baby, so he didn't he didn't that was that. And then by the time I third brother nearest me got called up in the lottery he was uh the war ended Thank yeah God. me and my brother both we were right at the top of the lottery and oh my, my brother had flat feet and then i had hurt my knee and couldn't oh wow I, was like, ah, I just missed this you, you know, know i've known you a long time i never knew you had a brother and a sister just three kids or yeah okay so older sister you're in the middle i'm the youngest i was the youngest yeah me yeah. too my brother's a year older than me and what does he do he's a lawyer well see there you go no. Same family, one's a lawyer, the other's a, you know, a, a, a rock star producer, engineer, creator. Hmm. Well, it's funny because I've known you a long time and there's all these things that come to light and that's why I wanted to do these things. I want people to get to know the people that are making the records that they listen to. You know what I mean? So now when someone listens to a record that you did, they go, oh, I know that guy. He's in San Francisco <laughs> and he grew up in a tiny town in a three-room schoolhouse or whatever, you know? When the guy, you know, I mean, the... In the 70s, I mean, the, the, the Starship and stuff, oh, those people were still all around. And the dead guy, the dead yeah. were, people were all around. So it was still... There was an artist from San Francisco that my brothers turned me on to, and it was either 1969 or 1970, and the band was called Fear Itself. And the lead singer, the woman was, um, not Lorena McKennett, maybe. I've never forgot this band as long as I live, and for the longest time I couldn't find the LP. And just recently, my older brother said I found the copy of Fear Itself. Oh my this God. woman was unbelievable. I'll play it for you sometime. But along the lines of a powerful singer like a Janice, like really, and I don't know what happened to him. I mean, so. uh, you know, there was there was still all those great clubs, you know, the Phil, and down, you know, the Fillmore. Oh, yeah, the Fillmore. And Did you see the Winter. Doors ever? I didn't see the doors. Yeah, I, I, I never did either. Well, we had to, but I was talking about that Taj, Taj Mahal, that first oh, album. Oh, yeah. Um, we'd, we were finally going to put a real console in. We had three days to put it in before his album started. We got the old Demidio from. Was it Taj Mahal our, or John Mayall? Taj Mahal. Dude, I love Taj. I know so, Taj. So we, we, had, we had three days. We got the, the old Demidio from A at Wally Hyder's. Yeah. Um, and. We didn't know how we were going to get this wired up. We had to start the album on Monday. It was like Thursday night, and we called the uh, call up the Grateful Dead guys, and they sent their tech crew over. Oh, I helped you to wire, wire it. Uh, wire but so Owsley shows up. They're all underneath the console, and Owsley's with the mirroring bottles dropping acid in their eyes. Oh my God! For three days straight, they wired the whole console and like tripping, up, tripping their brains, tripping their brains out. Was, it, was everything okay? Wire everything wise? was perfect. Like wow! But like I mean, for three and a half days straight, no sleep. They just were wired on acid oh and wired our whole thing. I just love that. It was I so love good, that you know? too. It just they were just focused, man. Yeah. I uh, I don't know. This might get edited out in the podcast but I, I actually did a lot of LSD in college and I would ace my tests I would trip and go in and take a test and I would 
I would just absolutely make the best grade. <laughs> <laughs> and then stand up to walk out of the class and feel like the concrete was like wet, you know, underneath your feet. And as I always like to say, don't do drugs. Give them to me. But anyway. <laughs> but, you know, it was still, it was just, it was an interesting time. It was a fun time to be, you know, just starting in the music business because, you know, there was... You know, it was still fun to just experiment with stuff. There were big record budgets. Yeah. This is pre-video, people. This is before videos ate up all the recording budget. You know, it was just, <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, the, it, it wasn't as, as interesting maybe as the early 60s, you know, the mid-60s or something. But it was I, still a great time. I happen to think Paola was a very effective way to get a record played. That's it all was. I'm going to say. You go to, you go to your local DJ, <laughs> wherever much you give the guy. You know, and, and when we were kids, DJs, and they still are personalities, but they were really personalities when we were kids. Yeah. You know, you had like Wolfman Jack. And I grew up in South Carolina. We had this station called WTMA. Right now, I can't remember the name of the DJ after I'm saying that, but they were like personalities. You know, those guys were, they were stars. They were, you know? I mean, all the, the radio, K-San and stuff in San Francisco, all those DJs were Remember were Casey Kasem? Remember yeah. that? They were all, those DJs were rock stars. They had so much power, but, you know, you used to be able to take a song down to the radio station and it was in, you know, I mean, there wasn't the national playlist and stuff. So yeah, was, yeah, was there that, wasn't, yeah, there wasn't the same kind of, it was a way for our, overseeing. It was, a, it was it a great way for artists to be able to break out in their, you know, in their local area. I, I mean, I, I think, I, you know, I think they should still do stuff like that. But yeah. you know, but you still had some kind of a gatekeeper, so there wasn't quite as much just crap that made it through. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what we were starting to, <laughs> to talk about earlier, and not to slag on on modern artists or anything like that. But back to what we were talking about, like artist empowerment's a good thing. Being able to record in your house, never thought it was a bad thing. I manage a commercial studio, so I want people to come book real studio. But at the end of the day, it's about the quality of the music. So having that gatekeeper, having that DJ who who, who heard it and said, there's no, I'm not playing this again. This is terrible. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't really have that. Now you have social media, which dictates who is and who isn't quote unquote popular, which is, I don't think that's good. In my humble opinion, I think, yeah. You know, if there was some happy medium between the yeah. two. Yeah, I mean, there needs to be a happy I've, medium. I've had... You know, great artists that all the labels said were crap that turned out to be Amazing. superstars. Well, the Killers classic example couldn't couldn't get a deal, and then I mean, look back. Imagine Dragons. We couldn't oh my get, god, so great. Get signed, you know, so great. But, um, but you know, there's uh, some happy medium between yeah, that because, yeah, yeah. because just having social media fans decide what labels should be signing, let, let, labels aren't necessarily doing quite the same. A and R that they were back. Yeah, then. I mean it it's was more... artist and repertoire. It wasn't. It wasn't. Oh, look at the numbers on the Instagram feed. You know. No, what I mean? if there was and some I get that they medium, need a fan but... base. I get that the fan base yeah. is a dick, or could be a could be a sign of an artist's potential popularity, or they're gauging them with the public. But I don't know. The whole thing's frightening. It's someone said something to me the other day, that, and I think you'll agree with me that, like, well, you're almost better off getting an influencer. And, t and giving them vocal lessons than you are trying to find an artist. But then again, like I, you that's know, depressing. I, said, I mean, Imagine Dragons had a right before they got signed um, to Kid in the Corner. They yeah. were they were they'd done a 
what, a, a month, two month residency at the Viper Room. They could sell at the Viper Room every night. What, it's 80 people. Yeah, exactly. You know, so they There's could no sell, to, or once a week they sell at the Viper Room. Yeah. They didn't have a huge fan base. All the labels hated them. But. Oh, I like that band so much. But so they glad. got, you know, that when they did the first release on its time, it went with number one across like 30 charts in, the, in a matter of months. I mean, the Dragons went from playing 80 people at the Viper Room in nine months. They played uh, Life is Beautiful Festival for 25,000 people. There you go. That, see, that's a, so, that's a but, happy success. So, uh, you know, they, they didn't really have, I mean, they had... Didn't have a huge social media presence. They had nothing. They could, they could barely say they could just sell at eighty people at the Viper Room. There's a few people outside, but you know, but you know, there was. They did do the push on its time to radio. The re reacted super well, radio, and yeah, and then the label really jumped behind the band. So, you know, you know, it's everybody puts. There's down. good. There's good things about both about about the open the open market of spot that is Spotify or right, uh, but. You know, there's also there's a good thing about label having money to push you too for marketing and yeah. promo, you know, or getting you like you said, getting you the the festival, getting them that festival, getting them booked there. Well, they were they were out nine months. They went from zero to being a huge band. Yeah, um, labels get bagged on all the time, and and essentially they're they're banks with high interest from from our from our point of view. But without that team, and, and here's I'm going to compliment them and take away that insult by saying that without a team of the people in the marketing and the promo departments, people that really do their job and know what they're doing, I mean, God bless them. Because yeah. a band like that now gets a fair shake, now gets heard, and actually gets out there. Yeah. You know. So go from, you know, yeah. no social media to being one of the biggest bands in the world in a pretty yeah. short order. Yeah. Um, there's good, there, there's good and bad things about both systems, and I just, I, you know, I just try to keep making music. I, <laughs> I just ignore it all. I got a bunch of artists we're developing. You know, we have three artists we're developing now, and you know, I just I keep mean, trying to make new stuff. But if you get to do what you love for a living, and you don't, yeah. and you don't hate going to work, I have to pinch myself. People it's a still, dream. I people, know. People pay me to make music. Still, I'm it's almost amazing. seventy. You know. Oh my God! Well, you don't even look. You look. <laughs> those of you who cannot see Mark, he looks fantastic. He's in great shape. Well, that kind of that kind of brings us brings us to a close there. I mean, to be able to do what you love, to get paid to do what you love, and to hopefully, you know, be proud of what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be whatever. Part I play is a is a mixer, you know, producer and or developer and. Yeah, you're more of a producer now than an engineer. But you know, I've just feel the. If <laughs> Someone's can, opening the door and closing it. Oh, well. If you can, you know, if I, if I was a, my small part of doing some, you know, making some songs that a hundred million people around the world can look back and, and they can hear that they can it. hear that song and go, Oh yeah, that's when I was in high school, blah 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 yeah. you know, and it brings back that time. I was like, what that? I mean that's, that's like, cool. Yeah, it's fun, right? I mean it's so cool because I mean think about from my own perspective, music is so so associated with memories. Coming Absolutely. of age memories, you know, yeah. different times in my life. Uh, music gets you through tough times, you know. You, you know, you hear a song on the radio and it fucking lifts you up. 
You know what I mean? I mean, it sounds corny, but that's why I, I love music. So yeah, <laughs> you know, I still love music. So there you go. I mean, that's that's why I mean, I, I, that's why I keep trying to do the development stuff and. And just, you know, one of the things that makes me want to go in and do this every day is just, you know. Keep an I've, open mind. I've had enough of those songs that, I've, that have become a moment in people's memories, you know. And it's just like, oh, shit, I was part, I was part of that. I helped do that. And, you know. It's so cool. It's awesome. It's fun. You know? Oh, it's so cool. Well, I, I thank you so much for, for coming in today. And I, like I said, I've known you a long time and there's things I didn't know. Yeah, you know, so it's so, so cool to get to know you more, and I love you forever. You're one of my favorite people. I don't say that lightly, but uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Thank God for people like you. I love you, Candace. <laughs> I wish Thank, there was more yeah. of you. Yeah, well, I yeah. wish there was more studio managers like you. You know, <laughs> or trade secrets, right? You get the double entendre where it's yes, trade I, secrets, but we're trading secrets. See, I yeah. got it. I got it. Der. Anyway, well, thank you so much for your time. I'll, I'll let you know when this is going to air and. Uh, I don't really think we're going to edit much because I think you're awesome and I want people to hear everything you said. <laughs> and I guess we're done. So I don't know if I can see my guy in the control. The demon's still there. They can put him on autopilot. Please, please. Yeah, you probably left. <laughs> oh, there he is. He was